Uh, my name's Tim Thorburn. Um, I'm a staff worker at UWA and the uh, WA Regional Director of AFES. And it's terrific to be with you tonight. One of the things, uh, sorry, uh, page 12 in your books, if you're at NYC, or I think if you're a visitor, um, uh, you have received an outline of the talk. I hope that's helpful for you. One thing I love about uni students is that they're full of dreams and hopes for the future. Some of those are very personal. What they think they would love to do with their lives, they're studying to get degrees that might open doors for their lives. Some are bigger than that. They're global. They long for a just and free world, a sustainable world. And yet, some of us old people are much more jaded and scarred. We had those dreams and hopes when we were younger, but we don't have them anymore. I'm glad young people still have them. But with those dreams and hopes comes anxiety. Will I succeed? Will what I hope and dream about actually come to be? Will it prove elusive? Will global warming make life so difficult for me and others that it's not worth living? Will we leave a world to our children that isn't livable? Now, anxiety doesn't stop us dreaming, does it? It doesn't stop us hoping. In fact, for some of us, it just makes us more determined to realise our dreams, to strive for success. And so, a verse like 1 Peter chapter 1 comes as a bit of a shock. Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, I think as I hear that, it's easy to say, well, I know people in Africa who should really do this because they've got nothing to hope for here, have they? It's a difficult life there. But for us, how would we ever set our hopes fully on what is coming when Jesus returns? There are so many other things I can hope for. That special friend, the, the travel that might come when COVID finally lets us go. The, the dream to be a YouTube sensation and, and win the world somehow. See, for us to take 1 Peter 1 seriously, what needs to happen? I think two things need to happen. Somehow, my picture, my imagination of what I'm hoping for needs to be much clearer. If it's just a vague halos and harps, well, who's attracted to that? Who would ever want that for eternity? It sounds both boring and terrible. We need a clear picture of what it is we're hoping for. And secondly, we somehow need to be weaned off the hopes that we have for the here and now. So tonight we're exploring the subject of raised with Christ. For those who are visitors, we've spent some time thinking about, especially this morning, the resurrection of Jesus. God raised Jesus to life, to be the Lord and Christ, to be the Messiah who rules his new world forever, this age and the age to come. But tonight we're thinking about ourselves, the prospect of being raised like Christ. <coughs> and our future excuse me, is revealed in many parts of the Bible, especially in the New Testament. Here's one, Philippians chapter 3. Our citizenship is in heaven. And you might think, oh, that means I'm waiting to go to heaven. If that's my home, that's where I belong, let's go to heaven. But that's not what he says. We're eagerly await a saviour from heaven who will come here, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies, our bodies of humility, so they'll be like his glorious body, his resurrection body. That is the nub of the Christian hope, what we're looking forward to. Notice a central aspect of that is Jesus. 
He will come. The one I know from a distance now, I will know face to face. The one I love, I trust, I rejoice in, I will be with him and he with me. But it's also the transformation of our bodies to be like his glorious body. (coughs) Or 1 Corinthians 15. In our small groups, we're looking at this whole chapter. And one of the key verses is verse 20. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have died already. The idea of first fruits probably is not familiar to most of us because we're not orchardists, we're not farmers. You know what this is? It's a mandarin, yeah. If you'd gone to the shops about six weeks ago, the very first mandarins of season 2021 would have been on the shelves. Of course, they're the first one, they're very expensive. But as soon as you see the first ones there, it tells you two things. It tells you there's more to come. Because they're the first fruits. There's many more on the trees. They're ripening. They'll be in the shops pretty soon. They also tell you what these mandarins are going to taste like. Because if this one is sweet, then so will they be. They're the pattern and guarantee of the future. And Paul says Jesus' resurrection is like that. It's the pattern and guarantee of our resurrection. So when God raised Jesus to life again, it wasn't God just pulling a a rabbit out of a hat, just something to show people how wonderful and powerful he was so we all go, wow. No, it was the first event, the first action of God in the renewal and recreation, the resurrection of the whole universe, including physical bodies of you and me. The resurrection of Jesus reveals our future. We will be raised like Christ. And Romans chapter 8 is one of the passages, key passages, where the Bible explores that idea of our future and its effect on our life now. So if you have a Bible, really helpful to, to have it open to that passage that Kara read for us in Romans chapter 8. The pain and the glory. Notice in verse 18, 17 and 18, Paul indicates that the pattern of life for God's people is suffering now and glory in the future. But he says the suffering now is not in the same league as the future, as the glory then. He likens it to labour pains of childbirth. Now, I'm very glad to say I've never suffered labour pains. I gather, though, from people who have, they are painful. They are really, really bad, which I presume is why God didn't think men could cope. That's why we have to do it. We wouldn't have coped with it. It's that sort of pain. It's painful at the time. But one of the things that is really intriguing about labour pains is that most mums, once the baby's born, it's almost like they forget that pain. The joy of having this newborn, of cuddling it, of going goo, 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 and it smiles back eventually. Well, they hope it smiles. It's probably just passing wind at the time. But (laughs) somehow it makes them forget the pain. How do I know that? Because most of them line up to do it again. Go through the pain again. Because the glory afterwards, the joy afterwards, so overshadows what was before. And and Paul says, think about that as you think about suffering now and glory then. And he winds his vision to much bigger than just you or me and our friends. He thinks about the whole creation groaning. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. (coughs) He personifies 
nature, like mother nature, going through these groans, this, this painful labour. He says in verse 20 and 21, it's, it's the frustration of decay subjected to that. By, I take it, God himself. It's a reference back to Genesis 3, where after humans rebel against God, Adam and Eve not just disobey, they replace God as the one who's going to determine good and evil. God, in response to that human sin, subjects the earth to frustration. And it sort of makes sense, because if God gave us the rule of creation and we go bad, then that affects the creation that we rule. Cursed is the ground because of you, said God. The creation no longer works as it was meant to work, as it was designed to work. Life outside, outside the garden is, is a struggle because creation is sort of broken. Our physicists call that entropy. It just keeps increasing that unwavering tendency towards chaos and decomposition, floods and droughts and earthquakes and disease, the pain of groaning. But there's another side to this groaning. You see it in those verses 19 to 21. That the creation groans in hope, verse 21, that it will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. It's waiting to be liberated. It's aware in a funny sort of way that one day it will be liberated. When the children of God are liberated in glorious resurrection, when we are resurrected, Creation will be liberated along with us because our destinies are tied together. They were in creation. They will be in new creation. Pain leads to groaning. But when you know that that pain is short-lived, that it's temporary, it's going to change, you groan in a different tone of voice, especially when the freedom then is, it, it will far surpass the bondage now. You know that, don't you? You've all done waste exams. You've had the bondage of decay and frustration. And, but you know that it's going to finish. You'll do the exams, you'll write them, you'll, they'll be over. And you're liberated. You groaned, but not the hopeless groan of pain that never ends. Creation groans. And Paul says that we groan as well. Verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. We sort of, I don't know, we get into harmony with creation. It's groaning and we groan as well. When creation is broken, it doesn't work properly, we suffer. That, that's part of the groaning, the heat waves and the food that goes off even in the fridge. But it's more than that. So you go back to Genesis 3. God inflicted on us groaning and pain at the most sensitive points of our lives, in family and childbirth, marriage and family life, and in our work. And if you reflect on it, those two things which are so prominent in Genesis 1 to 3 are sort of what life is about in many ways, aren't they? They're the things that promise so much for us. Our hopes and dreams are so much about a family I can be part of, a marriage relationship that I might belong to, and about our work, what I might achieve, the job I might have, the career I might get. So much of it revolves around that, and the Bible resonates with that observation. But that's the point where God creates the groaning and frustration. The things that promise so much end up being disappointing, end up being less than we hoped they'd be. 
that dream job isn't the dream job. The marriage made in heaven was not made in heaven. It still might be good, but it's not what it could be. And we all feel that. And that happens sort of in everything in life. You know, that holiday you, you dreamt about and in your imagination it was perfect. You, you, you were going to have the most enjoyable time ever. But you didn't, did you? It was never quite what you thought it would be in prospect. The, the ball that you went to, that was going to be the dream night of the year. But something spoiled it. It all, always does. It's just like that. That date you went on that you thought would be the beginning of the best thing in the world. And, well, it might have been the the beginning of something, but it wasn't the best thing in the world. Everything ends up being sort of disappointing. It doesn't deliver the way we dreamed it would. But that groaning that comes to all of us is not necessarily a depressing groan of never-alleviated pain and disappointment. Because Paul says we groan in hope in hope of the redemption of our bodies, the adoption to sonship. That's what we're hoping. It's a different sort of groaning to that hopeless groaning. It's infused with hope that one day my body will be redeemed. And much of that frustration is sort of bodily, isn't it? I experience it in my body as well as in my psyche. Now, many of you are still pretty young and you haven't started to feel that, that bodily decay yet, have you? How many of you have turned 18? Okay, well, I'm sorry to tell you this, but 18 is the peak. From here on in, it's downhill physically. And in fact, I think 18 is where the sort of, yeah, the, the, the growth towards things meets the decay that's already started. It reaches sort of equilibrium at 18, and from then on, it's the decay that takes over, and you get someone like me, a little bit older. But Paul Pidge's Christians in that decay, in that groaning, as waiting eagerly, as on tiptoes standing, eagerly expecting that day, looking forward to that day when Christ will return and we will be resurrected. You know, like Chris, kids wait for Christmas. You just can't keep them down, can you? They're, they're just talking about it all the time. They're eagerly waiting for Christmas. So Christians are like that, says Paul. Although when I look at most of us, it's not a very accurate description, is it? I'm not the first to observe that amongst in Western societies, most Christians don't seem pumped with anticipation of resurrection. We seem much more obsessed with this life and this world, not the next. So hear what Paul says in verse 24 and 25. In this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they've already got? That's right, isn't it? It's if you think you can get it now, if you can somehow get for yourself everything that fulfills your dreams and hopes, you, you don't hope for the next world, do you? You just hope for this one. It's the immediate. It's, it's what's in front of us. But God means us to hope, to long, to groan. And that means he frustrates life now. That's why it's never all that it could be. That's why it always disappoints, at least partly. Do you get frustrated? Do you feel that? You're meant to. God wants you to, so that you will hope, so that you will long for resurrection. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, 
we're too easily satisfied. We think that playing with mud pies is it when there's a holiday by the seaside beckoning. Too easily satisfied. No, get frustrated. Feel it and groan. Because what we long for is wonderful and incredible. And he describes it in verse 23 as the redemption of our bodies. Physical resurrection, just like Jesus' resurrection. Renewed bodies. Our hope, as we've said before, is not going to heaven when I die. It's not becoming a star in the sky. It's life after, life after death. Physical, resurrected life in a new creation. Because this world will be resurrected with us. Jesus described this event as the renewal of all things, not just us, but the whole creation. God won't throw this creation out. He won't dump it on the rubbish heap uh, as a waste of effort. He won't start again with a new universe. No, this matters to him. He's got plans for this creation to renovate it. it it's sort of like Narnia, if you know the Narnia stories, that's transformed from winter fro- freezing to sun-drenched summer. Now, obviously, that raises the question of Christians and environmentalism. So let me just make a couple of comments about that, although it's not the main point of tonight. Should Christians be green in that sense? And I, I think the short answer is yes, but a cautious yes. Yes, because God values this world, this, this creation, the trees, the hills, the mountains, the streams, the environment that we live in. And he's entrusted its development and care to humans. And we should feel a sense of responsibility for it. We were created to have that responsibility. The whales don't have it. They shouldn't have it. They're not responsible for us, but we are for them. And so we should be concerned, deeply concerned, about the degradation, about extinctions, about global warming. But more than that, we need to recognise that humans and creation are interdependent. That's how God has created it. It's an ecosystem where we're part of it, as well as responsible for it. And so when we stuff up the environment, it comes back to bite us, us humans, the human race. And I think the statistics show that the people affected most by environmental degradation are the poor of the world, the three billion people who live below the poverty line, whose health is threatened by smoke and chemicals, whose land is lost by rising seas. We can insulate ourselves from the effects to a large extent, can't we? gets a bit hotter, we just turn the air conditioning up a bit higher. We buy bottled water and drink it. And by and large, it's the greed and comfort of people like us that causes most of the problems. And so in love for the poor and vulnerable, we should act. We should care for the world. Yes, with caution. Caution, because God is the only one who is capable of and will restore and renew this creation. We won't do it. Environmental action can never make this a paradise, and it certainly won't bring people to eternal life. We have a much bigger gospel than save the whales. We have a much better gospel than stop global warming. It'll kill us all. God will renew the creation. He will raise the dead to life. And our gospel is especially about the immortality that Jesus has brought to light by his death and resurrection. But I want you to notice how physical all this is. 
It's about the world and it's, it's about us. It's about physical bodies in a physical universe. I want you to stop and just think for a minute about yourself. What are you? I want to suggest you are a body. A real body. You're, you're more than a body, but you're not less than a body. Your body is part of who you are. It's not something to be discarded and the, the real you remains. I think our experience of life shows us that. You express yourself bodily, don't you? You recognise other people physically. You, you see them walking down the street. I, I can recognise people from behind just from the way they walk because I, I know them physically. We express our relationships physically. I don't just mean hugging and hitting and sex and those sort of things, but just our, our, we speak with our hands. We smile. All, all that bodily expression is part of our relationships with each other. A less than bodily existence, just souls, is very much diminished life. If all we are are souls for eternity, death has won a significant victory. He's left us hollowed out, much less than we are now even, much less than we could be. We aren't souls trapped in a body. We're embodied beings. I want you to think as well, a little bit about bodies and what they can do. We're going to show a video. Um, Lockie's going to put it on. Rosemary and I, a few years ago, went to see a thing called Cirque du Soleil. Uh, This is just a clip of some of the things they do. Just watch and be amazed at what bodies can do.
Thanks, Lucky. It's stunning, isn't it? Yeah, it's precision, but machines could do precision. It's expression. It's people doing that. It's their bodily expression that makes it so wonderful. Now, I don't know how long they trained to be able to do that. I presume it was quite a few years. But it gives you an idea of the capacity of the human body, what God has created us, and I presume of the resurrection body even more so. Sometimes people say that they aspire to reach their full potential. Can I say, if you can reach your full potential in 80 years, you're very disabled, aren't you? No, it'll take an eternity to reach your full potential as an embodied, resurrected person. But what will that resurrection actually, resurrection life actually be like in the age to come? It's physical, yes, but let's try and put some more flesh on that. What, what will it be like? What will the experience be like? <coughs> and here, uh, <coughs> excuse me, the Apostle Paul's favourite word for the age to come is the word glory. Now, I don't know whether the word glory means anything to you. It's actually a word that we cherish in some situations. Last time West Coast Eagles won the premiership, they had a ticker tape parade down the middle of uh, the the city and everybody went out and they were glorified, they were honoured and everybody enjoyed it, not just the players but all all the people cheering on. It's a a communal experience in a sense, that, that, that glory. The word originally meant or came from the word for weight. It was about the importance of your person because the only people who could wear sort of heavy clothes, could afford heavy clothes, were the wealthy and influential people. Uh, And so it it came from that idea of of importance, of being a, a weighty person. But as the Bible uses the concept, there are sort of three elements to the glory that is worth talking about and then seeing its implications. And you can see it in those three circles on your uh, outline. Ontological glory, sorry for using philosophical language. Ontological just means who you are in yourself. So ontological glory is when you, in who you are, are wonderfully glorious. That's what God is like, isn't he? He's glorious in himself. His wisdom, his power, his justice, his love, just make him wonderful. And we too will share a glory like that. That The Cirque du Soleil, it's the glory in their own bodies, their capacities, isn't it? That is so wonderful, ontological glory. Then there's functional glory, which is about the job you do. The vice-chancellor of UWA has more glory than the janitor because of his job. He has a job that, well, at least in some people's estimation, is more significant. It, It matters more. He has more responsibility. He affects more things. He has that sort of functional glory. I understand that in something like a law firm, what every lawyer aspires to is the day the senior partner walks into their office and says, congratulations, partner. You have become one of us, one of the the people who own this business. You have functional glory. But the peak of glory is relational glory. It's it's recognition of others. It's the honour given especially when it's deserved. Advent Park soccer team, you deserve it. You won brilliantly, wonderfully. We should have cheered. Of course we should have, especially if you come from Advent Park. I love going to 21st birthday parties. And the moment I wait for it every 21st is the moment when dad or mum or both together 
make this speech about their son or daughter. And inevitably, after recalling some of the highlights of their life and lowlights of their lives, they say something like this. We are so proud of you. So at that moment, they are giving relational honour to their son, to their daughter. And it's a great moment for the parents doing that. They really are proud of them. They want everyone to know that. And the person being honoured, well, sometimes they don't know where to look, but there's usually a smile on their face. that They're enjoying that. And we're enjoying it because it's rightly given. It's a wonderful, it's the party. That's what we're all there for, to share in that relational glory. And I want to suggest that that relational glory is actually the crowning experience of life. That, that is the most joyful thing you can ever experience is glory given, received, enjoyed by others. Notice those three sorts of glory, ontological, functional, they sort of connect together. But the, the, the peak is relational glory. Well, let's think about that and us, because if our future is glory, what's that going to look like for us? I want to trace the thread right back to the beginning of the Bible. Where are we? Yeah. Back in Genesis chapter 1, God created humanity in his own image, unique of all the creation, all the beings of this world, the snakes and, and scorpions uh, and cockroaches. Humans alone were in the image of God. We had that ontological glory. We were like God in some senses. And we're given the role to rule and subdue creation, a a functional glory. We were over creation. But notice we're given the task to subdue creation. It it implies that some sense creation as God made it was unfinished. There was space for humans to get in there and do something with what God had made. God left that space for us. In Psalm 8, the psalmist reflects on that. Here it is, sorry. Um, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than God. You crowned him with glory and honour. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. Think, why did God entrust creations to humans? Why did he say, you go and rule it? Was it because he was exhausted, just needed a break? No, it was because he wanted to share his glory with us. Give us a place of real honour and glory within his creation. And that's a a staggering thing. It's it's pure grace. We didn't do anything to deserve it. He created us into that. It's staggering that God, to whom all glory is due, would say, I want you to get some as well. Same thread we see in the promises to Abraham. He promises Abraham blessing. And what is one of those promises? His name will become great. He will be a weighty person, acclaimed and recognised. To David, he said, I will make your name great, like the greatest of uh, the names of the greatest people in history. See, our desire to be honoured is not wrong. God expects Abraham to enjoy God making his name great. He doesn't expect Abraham to say, oh, no, thanks, I, I hate that to happen. No, he thinks Abram will enjoy it, and David as well. It's not the desire for honour that's wrong. It's the demanding that is wrong. And so Paul says in Romans 5, just his way of summarising, rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not just the hope of glory, but the hope of the glory of God. Not the waning glory of the West Coast Eagles or the underweight glory of Taylor Swift and BTS, but the wow of God's glory. Or in Romans 8, 17, 
Paul puts it this way. We're heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. That is, God's destiny for us is that we share in the glory of Christ. Christ will share his glory with us. And that has different aspects. In verse 29, we will share the image of Christ. We'll be made like him. And that's bodily. Physically, we'll be resurrected to be have bodies like his resurrection body. But it's more than physical. It's We're conformed to his image in ourselves, in our character, in his sinlessness. Now, sinlessness at first sounds very negative, doesn't it? Now, who would be the most boring person in the world? Well, it's the sinless person, isn't it? No fun with them. But think about Jesus for a minute, because that's not what he's like at all. He's sinless, that's right. But it's a wonderful, attractive sinlessness. Remember when he raises Jairus' daughter from, from dead? And everyone in the room, the parents and, and the others, their, their jaws are just on the ground. They can't believe what they've just seen. They're, they're blown away. That's all they're thinking about. And what does Jesus say? He says, she's hungry, give her something to eat. It's a beautiful touch, isn't it? He's just demonstrated the power to raise the dead. But his love and concern for a 12-year-old girl goes to recognise she feels a bit hungry. Please provide for her. That's the sort of sinlessness I want to have. I want to be like that. It's, It's wonderfully attractive. It's ontological glory and one day I'll be like that. Imagine being thoroughly good where I'm no longer self-conscious about me and what I'm doing. I'm no longer self-protective like Jesus wasn't with Jairus' daughter. Imagine being so thoroughly good. I I don't have to fear that my selfishness will break out. I, I no longer have to sort of keep it all together because I'll just be good. And you will be too and I'll really appreciate that and enjoy that. Uh, That will be glorious. But it goes further. We'll be fellow heirs with Christ. That is, Christ will share with us what he inherits. Who does he inherit from? God the Father. What does the Father own? A few cows? A couple of planets? The whole show is what he owns. That's what Christ will inherit, the whole universe. It's his by right and he will inherit it. And what does he say? He says to you and me, come and share it with me. That is stunning, isn't it? I remember watching an interview of a guy called Billy Graham. Billy Graham was a world-renowned evangelist. He came to Australia when I was a university student. And because he was world-renowned, he was interviewed on some of those um, uh, uh, um, uh, news channels, uh, interview with Mike Willisey. Um, uh, Mike Willisey, was, who was sort of the top current affairs interviewer in Australia at the time, he asked him about heaven because Billy Graham unabashedly said, I'm confident of, of eternal life, of resurrection. And that just blew Willis's mind. And he said, what do you think you're going to be doing? And Billy Graham said, well, I'm not really sure, but I suspect probably I'll be uh, travelling from planet to planet and looking after gardens and planets. And I remember hearing that and thinking, oh, Billy, you've lost it. <laughs> you've got to be joking. Why, why are you talking about that? But the more I've thought about it, the more I think he's probably right. We will own the universe with Jesus. He will share that ownership with us and we'll look after it and there'll be something worth doing every day of eternity, forever. Have you ever been envious 
of those waterside mansions down at Dalkeith and Mosman Park and all those ones up in the hills in Darlington that just have got the views right across the city and think, oh, I wish I'd live here one day. I wish I could own a house like that. Well, you probably will. Don't worry. You will inherit the universe with Jesus. You're not going to miss out on anything because you don't live there now. Now, I'm not saying this is your mansion and that's mine. I'm, I'm just trying to help us see what it means to be an heir with the Son. We'll be owners to rule and develop the universe and that will be deeply satisfying, whether it's farming or engineering or artistic or whatever it might be. It'll be glorious. But there's something about what we do now that goes through. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. Paul says, We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. I'm a co-heir with Christ for the future, but even now in this life, I'm a partner with God in his saving and transforming work. And you might ask, why on earth does God use us? Why use broken, feeble people like you and me, sinful people, to do evangelism, to build his church? He could do it so much better without us, couldn't he? Just send a few people like Jesus, that they'd do it brilliantly. Or why does God listen to my prayers? Why does God take my advice when he's the all-wise one? I'm guaranteed that whatever I ask God to do, it's worse than what he's got in mind. So why does he ask me to pray? Why does he invite me to pray? Because he wants to share his glory with us. He wants us to be co-workers with him in this endeavour now that will affect eternity. That's why he's left space for us like he did with Adam and Eve back in the garden. A little bit like, I don't know if you've seen it, but sometimes kids want to cook a cake with their mum. And you know the, the story, don't you? The mum gets them there and they they sort of cook a cake well. They spill all the flour on the floor and they get two of the sultanas into the dish, but they eat the rest of them. But in the end, there there is a cake because mum has been there doing most of it all the time. And then they give it to dad and say, look what your daughter made for you. Because mum wants the daughter to have that experience and the joy of sharing in the glory. That's that relational glory. When I was in year six, uh, I used to go to Sunday school, kids' church, whatever, whatever you call it. Um, we had a teacher called Mr. Page who was an older, single man. He seemed very old to me. He was probably only 40. <laughs> and we gave him hell. Can you imagine what a bunch of uh, 11-year-old guys can do to an older, single guy? Well, we, we did everything you can imagine to him. And every week he came back. He, he didn't miss a week. He'd bring something for us to eat. He'd try and teach us something about Jesus again, week after week after week. He lived down on the edge of the bush near where I lived. And I remember one day me and some mates were playing down in the bush because we we just loved being in the bush, mucking around with water and streams and stuff. And he came out and said, are you hungry, guys? Do you want to come in? And he he baked some scones and he he fed us. Nothing sinister about it. He just loved us. Well, I lost contact with Mr Page. I haven't seen him since then. I became a Christian about two years later. I'm looking forward to the day when I find Mr Page in the age to come. And I'm going to apologise for how I treated him. But we're going to rejoice in what God did 
through his teaching Sunday school. That I'm there partly because he persisted week after week after week. And if you're around, I'm going to call you over and I'm going to tell you, I'll regale you with stories about Mr Page. And he'll look a little bit embarrassed, but it will be wonderful, won't it? And I'll call Jesus over and Jesus will put an arm around Mr Page and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And we'll reminisce for a few years. (laughs) And I'll find somebody else who's been like that. And we'll have the joy of glory, the shared joy of giving glory to those who deserve it because God decided to share his glory with us and not keep it all for himself. He deserves it all, but in his grace, in his love, he's given us an eternity to enjoy glory. And there's nothing more wonderful than that sort of glory, the satisfaction of labour that matters, the joy of giving and receiving and seeing other people receive that sort of honour. And that's what we hope for. We hope for glory, for the glory of God. Now, we've just seen a glimpse of that tonight, and it's not a very clear glimpse, is it? It's it's sort of like trying to describe snow to people who've only ever lived in Kununurra. But I hope it's become just a little bit more real, something that you can imagine Physical, relational, wonderful. And I hope as you imagine it, you're drawn to it. You start to set your hope on the salvation to be revealed when Jesus is revealed. So I want to finish with two watertight guarantees that God gives us. If you are in Christ, if you called on Jesus, the Lord Jesus, to save you, then the first watertight guarantee is of resurrection glory. He says, your hope is secure. So you can long for it without fear of disappointment. Uh, Verse 23 tells us he's already given us the first fruits of that resurrection, which is the spirit. He's paid a deposit on it. He's put his spirit in us. And in that sense, he's marked us as his. I will remake you. I will resurrect you. And what was his deposit? Well, it wasn't a hundred bucks, was it? wasn't $1,000. It was God himself, God's spirit indwelling us. That, that's commitment. And what the spirit has already started in that work of transformation, he's not going to quit. It's going to finish. And we're sure of that resurrection glory because God is our sovereign father. Verse 28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Those whom foreknew, he, he's predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. He's at work in everything to get me there. How do I know that? Of course, he was at work in everything to call me to himself. Think about your own experience. I don't know what your story is, but I presume for all of us who know Christ, God has used a variety of things, both good and evil, wonderful and not wonderful, pleasant and unpleasant. Our families, our our friends, a a crisis we went through, a book that was left somewhere. God has weaved all sorts of things together to bring you to faith in Jesus. And he'll keep doing that to get you to the end. Verse 30 describes this unbreakable chain. Those predestined called, those called justified, those justified. He's so certain they will be glorified. He puts it in the past tense. Which of those links is, is weak? 
Not one of them if it's God who's doing it. In verse 31 to 39, he he talks about us being loved. Verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's interesting, it's past tense. He doesn't say through him who loves us. In fact, the New Testament, as far as I know, never says God or Christ loves us. It always says he loved us. Why is that? It's It's a peculiar sort of thing, isn't it? I take it's because every time the writers of the New Testament, those who knew Jesus, think about God's love for them, they always think about an event. He loved us. He loved us when he gave his life for us. Therefore, I know he loves us because he loved us. The present groaning is not in the same league as the glory that's in store. So this is what I found on one gravestone. Sleeping until resurrection morn. That's a very confident, clear gravestone, isn't it? Belief in the resurrection. So first watertight guarantee is resurrection glory. The second one is not quite so pleasant. It's frustration. God will frustrate your dreams and hopes for heaven on earth. All those half-formed visions of how your life could turn out and what you'd love it to turn out like and all the aspirations of where your study and efforts will take you They won't live up to what you hope they'll be. They might even succeed, but the success will be hollow. It won't deliver, it won't satisfy. A lot of blokes get to my age or a bit younger and they go through what's called a midlife crisis. Why? Because it didn't satisfy. It's actually the most successful ones who go through that because they thought it would and then they're let down and they become cynical old people. Don't waste your life chasing rainbows. Get real. The greatest self-deceit is the lie of if only. If only I had that, life really would be satisfying. If I only got that job, if I only had the latest device, if I only met that guy or that girl, if I only did that, that travel, that holiday. No, it wouldn't do it for you. Just cut it out of your vocab because it's not true. God guarantees it won't satisfy. He will leave you groaning. What do what do you do with the groaning? Don't suppress it. Don't suppress it with more wishful thinking. Feel the frustration and groan. Let it drive you to hope. Let it drive you to long for resurrection glory. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Christ is revealed. Because one day you will get to dance on your own grave. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? You'll die. You'll get buried or cremated. There'll be a little plaque. You'll be in a niche in the wall or buried under a slab of granite. And it looks so final and complete. And every grave says, death has won. You lose. But one day, you will dance on your own grave. It'll be ripped open. And you'll be able to dance that little victory jig because death lost. What I'm thinking of putting on my tombstone is this. Jesus Jesus to death nil. Jesus kicked the first goal when he rose from the dead. He defeated death. And when I'm resurrected, that will be the final goal. The goal that finishes the match. Jesus to death zero. What a day that will be.